Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Stephen Bush. Welcome to a live recording of the New Statesman podcast with... I'm Alva Ray, the, new, the political correspondent, along with... Patrick Maguire, who I am also the political correspondent. <laughs> uh, Anusha Kelly, and for those of you who listen to the podcast, is sorry she can't be here because she's celebrating her 30th birthday. And I've only just absorbed the implications of the fact that she's celebrating her 30th birthday and yet all of us were free this evening... I've known Anoush for a decade. We've, <laughs> we've covered three general elections together, a referendum, Scottish independence referendum, local council elections, student union elections. And, and, that's, and that's exactly why you're not invited. Yeah. <laughs> so we're obviously going to talk about the looming horror that is the general election quite a lot, but I thought we'd also a little bit look back at the year that is gone. And so I'm going to put you both on the spot here and kind of ask you, Patrick, what is the thing that you got the biggest thing you've got wrong so far? Well, God, so far, yeah, God, it's a, it's, a, it's a low bar. So on the day that Theresa May resigned, it was a Friday in May, and I was actually off work for some reason, and like every day I take off work, I spent it watching Sky News and tweeting about politics. And when Theresa May resigned, for context, I had the week before dropped the Tory leadership interview that everybody wanted to read, which was 3,000 words of... Mark Harper, David Cameron's <laughs> former chief whip, not saying explicitly he was going to run for the Tory leadership, but boy, did he have thoughts about the future of the Conservative Party. And for reasons of having swallowed the Kool-Aid fed to me by Mark Harper and maybe probably the only Tory MP who believed Mark Harper's hype, once May resigned, I tweeted... Oh, God, and there was another angle to this. I tweeted, prediction, colon, Mark Harper and Graham Brady will beat Sajid Javid in the Tory leadership race. And for those of you that don't remember, and I'd be, you know, get out more if you do, Mark Harper got 10 votes in the first ballot of the Conservative leadership race, and Graham Brady didn't even run. Um, yeah. But I think the useful thing about getting things wrong, this is the thing I always comfort myself, is that it's the only time that you actually get to stress test whether or not any of the things you think or any of the conversations you've had with MPs have actually meant anything or in any way revealed very much. What do you feel, what do you, feel you learned from Mark Harper's failure to become Prime Minister? Well, actually, so I was, I was convinced, and ditto with Graham Brady, right? What did Graham Brady and Mark Harper have going for them? A question that Tory MPs were unable to answer. Well... <laughs> Uh, they had both opposed Theresa May's Brexit deal. They were both untainted by service in her cabinet. And something we all heard a lot from Conservative MPs in that period was, God, it can't be any of this you know, shower of ministers. It has to be 
a fresh is face, which is why, by the way, Kit Malthouse shouldn't have dropped out. Kit Malthouse would have been the you know, dark horse of that leadership race, and I still believe that. They all sincerely believe that up until the 23rd of May, when the Tories were annihilated in the European elections, and suddenly they all groped for the leader mar lever marked Boris. Reinforced that that was a, a real watershed in Tory MPs' thinking, even if a lot of them weren't prepared to admit it out loud until you saw, like, what? You're endorsing Boris? But... You know, you told me last week that, you know, you can't bear the sight of it. It was a real shift mm. in the way they thought. Alva, top back. So I think, I mean, I'm going to predict that your biggest mistake of the year will also pertain to Boris Johnson. And I think mine does too. And I haven't been in the New States for that long. And um, I think it's kind of about, like, the unpredictability of him as a political player. So, like, the thing that I got massively wrong was, you know, as you know, Stephen normally does his very widely successful and highly subscribed to by the Cabinet and Shadow Cabinet morning email, morning call. And we occasionally step in for him. And I think it was my second time stepping in for you. And it was the morning that Boris Johnson was due to have talks with Leo Varadkar in the north of England somewhere. And we didn't really know where. And the world. I like, the, in the Wirral. Nothing interesting and, ever happens and on there the was, So there was all this hype around it. And it was just one of these ones where I kind of knew that I shouldn't be predicting. But what do you write a morning email about if you don't write about that meeting? And there were just so many reasons why that shouldn't have come to anything, not least because the Irish government have like made it really clear the whole time that they don't engage in bilateral discussions, like they don't officially negotiate in a bilateral way with the UK. Like if you want to negotiate with the Republic of Ireland, you need to do it via the EU. So I was like, obviously, nothing is going to come of this. And like, I think I put in a caveat in the email, but I was pretty much like, dear readers, no, there's nothing to see here. And I actually I felt like a cold sweat come over me <laughs> as all the headlines came up later that day that, you know, it looked as though a breakthrough had come through. And then I wrote a sort of blog reflecting on that the following day because I felt like I needed to learn lessons from that. And we were talking about it as well, because I think we were both surprised. And I think that it taught us a lesson about Boris Johnson as a political player, which is that he is far less wedded to any big convictions or ideological positions than we think. That, you know, he, I mean, maybe you disagree, but I think that, that he was like prepared to make a major shift, which was ultimately politically advantageous to him. He, he got the victory of a deal by shafting the DUP and shifting majorly on a principle that pretty much the entire political class had assumed that he wouldn't move on, which was putting a border down the Irish Sea, protecting the union. And so I think that, I mean, maybe that's broadly similar to your one not expecting Boris to, you know, to command such majority support. And I don't know what your one will be, but I think it's also like Boris Johnson as like a very unpredictable political player. Well, it's all because I think I'm not going to count we don't have enough time for me to go through all of the, the wrong calls of 2019. But the, the problem with my free morning email, which you should all subscribe to, is um, the, the send button does make you feel you have to come down very firmly one way or the other. Yeah. You sometimes just feel like you kind of you start by going, maybe this, maybe that, and you think, oh, no, I, I need to make a, a statement. I need to have a show of strength. And then it's always a mistake to have a show of strength. And actually, mm -hmm. Brexit started with a show of strength, which was uh, in 2012, David Cameron didn't want to... Uh, there, was a, there was an amendment to the Queen's speech allowed by 
Noted uh, Brexiteer John Noted Burko. Brexiteer John Burko. This is when pro-leave MPs liked John Burko for sticking up to the government. Uh, they've gone off that now. No one's sure why. And there was this amendment. It wasn't going to pass because Labour and the Liberal Democrats were going to vote against it. And there was this debate within the top of the Conservative Party about whether or not they should have a free vote or whether, and whether or not they should say, no, we are a pro-European party, you've all got to vote for it. And the argument in Downing Street was that they needed a show of strength. A hundred Conservative MPs rebelled. It was part of one of the many things David Cameron did that year to annoy Tory MPs. And in order to keep the party together, he had to agree to an in-out referendum, which fortunately went out, off without a hitch and hasn't had any of us... Consequences for him, British politics, our economic model, it's just been all easy street since then. Mine is, yeah, it is Boris Johnson. Because I think, although I had, this actually isn't the thing I, I, I got wrong, but although I had quite a low opinion of Boris Johnson's level of commitment to any particular cause, because he had actually taken quite a big risk by going on and on about quite how much he was attached to the union and how he would never put a border there, I had this brief moment of thinking, maybe this is the thing you believe in, right? Yeah. He must have one, right? Yeah. Uh, everyone's got one, right? Mm. Um, and it's just like, oh, no, turns out the search goes on. <laughs> Mine was that when he resigned from the cabinet, I, and usually journalists do this thing where they go, I didn't write the headline. I mean, I didn't write the headline, but the headline was entirely fair to the tone of the piece, which was, this is the end of Boris Johnson's career <laughs> and a liberation for Theresa May. <laughs> I suppose unemployment is a liberation. <laughs> Of sorts, you know, you're kind of liberated from security and comfort and a salary, and and freed up to feel lots of exciting new emotions like fear and unease. But so the reason why I did this is when you'd sit down with any Conservative MP, you talk about you know the present political situation. They go, it's pretty bad. You know, how do you feel about Theresa May? Like, I hate her. I wish I'd never voted for her to be leader. I just want her to go. You're like, who do you want? And go, oh, the cabinet is full of dross, isn't it? But you know, they couldn't possibly be worse than what we have now. Actually, I read it's a lot like when Arsenal fans get together to talk about who could come after Unai Emery. It's just like, well, it couldn't possibly get worse, could it? And then you go, but, you know, the one thing that we have to do is we have to stop Dominic Raab and Boris Johnson. We have to stop Dominic Raab because he's mad and he'll turn off the voters. And we have to stop Boris Johnson because he's lazy and he'd be a rubbish prime minister. And in that context, Graham Brady and Mark Harper made so much sense. Well, <laughs> but, but this thing is, I think, I, the biggest surprise, I think even though I also think, looking back, we shouldn't have been surprised by it, was that everyone who covered politics assumed that if we had, like, a kind of smorgas... Like, a kind of guest-out average Conservative MP, right? Yeah, we had, like, some kind of weird coming-together of Matt Hancock and Nicky Morgan and Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and Pretty Patel into one, you know, one kind of, you know, individual person. Yeah, let's call them... Mark Harper. Um, <laughs> um, well, they would have said, it needs to be someone who voted to leave. It, it shouldn't be someone connected with this terrible government. It can't be Boris Johnson. Which meant that there were loads and loads of people going, OK, right, so that's quite a small group of people. So it must be one of the eight, gr the eight strong group who, fit, who meet all of these criteria. Except it then turned out that actually Conservative MPs were lying about that third one. I think not deliberately. I don't think they were lying knowingly. They were asking themselves a different question to the one that arose after the European election result. Yeah, I also think it's a bit like Labour MPs saying they were going to vote for Theresa May's Brexit deal. I genuinely do think they believed it every time this year. I know it feels slightly strange that Theresa May's Brexit deal was this year, right? It's a bit like when um, I started doing this uh, visiting lecturership thing at the University of Sussex, and occasionally I make a pop culture joke because I think they're the same age as me, and they're just 
they just look at me blankly and I just die a little bit inside. I, I, I made a joke about the 150 Pokemon. A hand went up and they went, there are 400 Pokemon. And I was just, what? <laughs> That's like every day in the office. It, it's really horrible. Uh, yeah, it's odd because on the one hand, I feel, I think the real low point is when people occasionally will write to me saying, my generation didn't pay tuition fees. Not true. <laughs> it really wasn't that long ago. Really haven't made a debt in that debt yet. But um, I think, yeah, the, the striking thing is, is, is ultimately what both of those had in common and the real political story of this year so far is that the average MP prioritises remaining an MP within that party, right? Most of the people who told us they would join a new party the second it was formed or that Luciana Berger was their red line are still Labour MPs now, although some of them, well, none of them are Labour MPs at the moment, and some of them may not be Labour MPs again, but they're all hoping to be Labour MPs again after the 12th of December. All of those people who said to us they wouldn't uh, make Boris Johnson Prime Minister, almost all of them did. They did not join Change UK or the Liberal Democrats or the independent group Mark II. But yeah, I think that's the thing, is I think, Mm -hmm. which does kind of, to me at least, the thing I feel at the end of this year does slightly call into question not to kind of have an existential crisis on stage, the point of, of lobby journalism. Well, yeah, I God, mean... God, it's early in the night for this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, so I haven't been in the lobby or at the New Statesman for very long, but I think that, that that was one of the first things that you said to me. I can't even remember which MP I'd been speaking to or what we'd been speaking about, but you said, I mean, oh, but obviously they want blah. And I said, well, no, they told me da-da-da. And I think it's not that MPs aren't honest with with political journalists but I think a lot of the time like they don't know their own motivations and like genuinely there's a huge disconnect between what they think they would do and think that they would vote on and what they end up doing when push comes to shove so then like having the ear of a politician or like them the them having your ear doesn't necessarily mean that you're more in tune with what they're going to end up voting on or doing yeah which is yeah. why as much as we're literally self-flagellating on stage <laughs> we shouldn't beat ourselves up yeah god this is an apology for the worst kind of journalism <laughs> Um, but, like, we shouldn't beat ourselves up for making wrong calls on the basis of the evidence that is available to us at the time. What do you think, Alpha, the biggest surprise to you has been this year? Oh, the biggest surprise? I mean, maybe Change UK. I mean, it was just... It's amazing that that was this year because... So I was at the Evening Standard before joining the New Statesman and I remember talking to lots of different people about a feeling of frustration that Labour wouldn't adopt a Remain position and that, there was, that they weren't going to back a second referendum and that this like, horrible feeling of like, being patronised by Jeremy Corbyn, basically, who said that he wanted a Democratic Labour Party but wouldn't listen to the membership on this point. And all these people saying, oh, we just need a centrist party. Obviously not the Lib Dems, because, you know, austerity or whatever. They would just say, obviously not the Lib Dems. We just need a new centrist party. And then there was the surprise of it actually happening and of it failing utterly and the Liberal Democrats having this revival all of a sudden because you would think in a way that those two things would be mutually exclusive. I mean, all the Ch- all Change UK has basically done is temporarily boost the Liberal Democrats and showcase to people that really when you're looking for a centrist party, the kind of one you've already got is the better option. But, yeah, that was a phenomenal surprise because I think that there was, there was sort of tension building for a long time about what, you know, Liberal Remainers would do and what would happen to the Labour Party, and we've seen that happen. And, 
yet here we are in December 2019 and we're still talking about Labour anti-Semitism and people who maybe also were hoping for a new centrist party because they were frustrated with the Liberal Democrats over austerity or their record in coalition also don't have a new party that they voted for and they've tried it and it didn't work. Yeah, I think this is the thing is I feel that yeah, on that morning uh, we were in... What was the venue they launched in? The County Hall, that bastion of, appropriately, that bastion of loony leftism from the 80s. Although this is an example of of me becoming an old person. I've started to do that thing my mum does where before a story I'm like, where was it? Yeah, was it? And was Jim there? (laughs) Um, But, you know, at at the County Hall venue, if if you'd said to me either of two things, you know, this will succeed or this will fail and the Liberal Democrats will continue to do badly, I would have broadly understood that. Yeah, because I feel that if we'd done this last year, someone would have asked about a new party and we would have said, you know, there's this thing called the Liberal Democrats, they've got thousands of councillors, quite literally they now have a thousand more than, than they did when we used to say that. You know, they have MPs, they have infrastructure, you know, data, all of the things that a political party needs to do to succeed. If that's the type of politics you want, they are available. And people would act like we were making fun of them or, or you know, that we were kind of or we were just, you know, self, self-evidently that we were kind of, you know, being facetious by saying, guys, the Lib Dems are available. And yet somehow the existence of a, guys, have you heard the Lib Dems are available party, was great news for the Liberal Democrats, mm. which I think mm. is, to me, one of the big things we still know we don't understand is quite why Change UK acted as this kind of... Um, boost, yeah, I mean, Vince Cable is quite literally the most electorally successful leader the Liberal Democrats have ever had. First, second place in an election since, what, 1922? No. uh, Longer ago than that. Yeah. Because they went from first to third. So literally their first, their first, first, second place since the franchise. Which Vince Cable is older than. (laughs) Sorry, that was a a cheap shot. No, I mean, I I think Chuck Ramuna's argument on this is quite convincing in as much as anything that Chugramuna says is convincing. But he said, like, actually, it took the job of setting up a party from scratch to make, you know, because if you, if you are like Chugramuna, you, you know, ascended through the Labour ranks largely through a process of, of patronage, be that the Compass Think Tank or Ed Miliband, who made up his PPS very early in his first term as an MP. Actually, if you, re- you know, ascended through patronage, ditto Anna Subri, who was on the Tory A-list, just about everybody in that party, apart from... Mike Gapes, that foot soldier of kinnickism. I mean, um, so even, actually, Mike Gapes does also count because the, the weird, the kind of weird thing about a lot of the 1992 Labour intake is lots of them were selected in the same way that some people in this Labour intake have been selected. I, the local members have gone, we'd like to select so and so, and the leadership's gone, interesting. Have you considered someone <laughs> completely different? Um, <laughs> with the expectation, of course, that the class of 1992 were going to provide. A government. The, the, yeah, the government of the future. And I think, you know, Mike Gapes would have, if Neil Kinnock had won the 92 election, immediately become a PPS, been a minister in two years, foreign minister, Europe minister, foreign secretary. I mean, basically, in another universe, Mike Gapes is the David Miliband of, a, of, a, of an earlier Labour government, right? They were actually all of them, with the exception of Anne Coffey, really, and even then Anne Coffey sort of applies this as well, were people who, as you say, were the products of a project. And I think one of the reasons why Labour moderates have struggled... I can't believe I used the word Labour moderates there, but one of the reasons Labour's Corbyn sceptics have struggled both before Corbyn happened to win elections and win internal elections and thereafter have struggled to retake Labour is because 
the that model of recruitment of the local party essentially gets given a managed choice, you're yeah. promoted by the leader, it turns out is a really rubbish way of, of producing an effective... And, you know, electorally, both externally and internally, everything is done for you. Yeah. So, actually, if you are Chuck Ramuna on that day in February, you go, right, what is it we do now? Actually, mm. it turns out it's really difficult. And I think, you know, that was um, admirably frank and candid from Chucker to say, this is really hard, my social democratic values broadly align with those guys over there, so I'm going to go there. And I also think that because this has been such a big year in terms of Brexit, that we haven't really had the, the post-mortem on Change UK that we could have and where it has left Labour. And I think we had like a tiny moment of that when Tom Watson announced that he would be stepping down because it unleashed a tiny bit of anger from the people who had left Labour to join Change UK. And it didn't get a huge amount of pick-up, but I thought it was really, really interesting that Tom Watson is seen by lots of people as a sort of champion of, of Labour's Corbyn sceptic wing. But the people who actually left are so angry with him because, I mean, they, you know, they all basically just said that he was the person standing in the door, that, you know, at, at when Change UK was founded, there was this expectation that there would be 30 or 40, if not more, Labour MPs who would soon join them. And they were waiting for the right time. And basically through... I mean, my understanding from what people have said is that Tom Watson had lots of private conversations with, the, with these people and said, look, we'll form our, our, our own group within the party for, you know, the more Corbyn sceptics and we'll produce policy, blah, blah, blah. But he basically, like, said to different people you know, this is a way that we can regain control of Labour and, you know, influence it with our values. And to other people, he said that it would be a vehicle through which to leave and that people like Chuka and the people who had broken ranks were politically toxic. And so they had, you know, in the same way that... What's that phrase about the person who wields the, the sword doesn't win the crown? That I they had to... That, that is just that, that's, just, yeah. that's just the phrase, yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, they wielded the sword and they were politically toxic, but that eventually his group could break off. And obviously that didn't really happen. And very s- sceptical members of Change UK would argue that even the Labour MPs who were convinced by Tom Watson never really believed it, and they just sort of took the easy way out by pretending to believe it or telling themselves that they believed it. Again, this question of whether MPs really know their own motivations. It's interesting what you say about Corbyn. You know, we don't know uh, the minds of politicians and they don't know what themselves motivates them. I had a really illuminating conversation with someone who turned out to be one of the founders of Change UK sort of three weeks before it happened. I remember asking them, you know, why is it that all of your colleagues, and they were clearly already sort of demob happy despite having not demobbed themselves from the Labour Party, and they said, actually, the behaviour of every Labour politician who's saying, we need a second referendum, I hate Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he'll agree to a referendum tomorrow, and this was the protracted period where Corbyn wasn't, was not even inching vaguely towards a second referendum. And they said, actually, all this sort of weird you know, elaborate reasoning when the, pon- uh, when the policy demonstrably isn't changing makes so much more sense if you take as the first, you know, the assumption that governs every Labour Corbyn sceptic's behaviour is that their tie, emotional and tribal ties to the Labour Party are so great that they will never go as far as to leave. Keep that in mind. All the weird behaviour from Corbyn sceptics, including the ones that are campaigning and telling people on the doorsteps, don't worry, I don't want him to be Prime Minister either. I remember having a conversation (laughs) with one of them a while ago where they said, I want Tom Tugendhat to be the Prime Minister. 
But if you keep in your head, they're never, ever, ever going to leave the Labour Party, then all the inexplicable behaviour has a very clear and obvious explanation. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think the change breakaway actually is the most significant event of the political year. Mm -hmm. Because up until that point, Remainers were very willing to stick with a uh, party which was, yes, pro a soft Brexit, but explicitly pro Brexit and had no plans to change that. And that allowed them to, well, one, it allowed them to, you know, kind of like gently torture Theresa May's government uh, and get no end of political joy out of that. And two, if you imagine that the election we're having now, which is weirdly a Brexit election in the, the broadcasters never talk about, you know, climate change or the NHS or any other policy issue, but it's not the Brexit election in any way that we have a meaningful conversation about the content of Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, if you imagine that this was an election, it wasn't just, are we going to have Brexit? Yes, no. But there are two flavours of Brexit, and then there's the Lib Dems offering you no Brexit. I think that election would be more painful and difficult for the Conservative Party. The reason why the Labour Party ended up moving into a position that Corbyn did not think was in his political interest to be in, which was being a second referendum party, is because they felt they had to prevent Change UK becoming a thing. Now, it may turn out, right, and this is why I say this might, be, this might turn out to actually be the stupidest thing I've said all year, it may turn out that when the election happens, we look back at what voters say about why they voted the way they did, and we'd go, oh, well, if it wasn't for Change UK, the Labour Party would not have switched its position in a way which meant that it, they ended up with a hung parliament. But it's equally possible we might look back on the breakaway from Change UK, even though it utterly failed on its own terms, it doesn't actually look to have been that good for the Liberal Democrats but I think it probably was the most significant event of the year. Before we go on to the election and then to questions, I did say I would let you talk about your successes. So, Patrick. Sorry, this is going to be really short and totally, completely, unless you, are, unless you have the misfortune to follow me on Twitter, this will make no sense to anybody. But my, my biggest success, and I'm not going to say this was a case of shrewd judgment or whatever, um, my biggest personal success was tracking down Robert Kilroy Silk and mm -hmm. they do follow you on Twitter. Uh, no, I think that's just like Kilroy. I, th I th forgot he was alive. Kilroy's still alive. He lives in a grade two star listed mansion on the outskirts of Plymouth. And he's not bitter at all. He's really zen, which is really disappointing <laughs> because I have this theory, and I could talk all night about this, but I won't, crucially, that Robert Kilroy Silk is the most significant politician of the 21st century in the UK, not the world. Um, hello, there's no. No, no, uh, no. Just quit. <laughs> Quick while you're, I mean, I'm not going to say ahead. Well, look, just... if Brexit is a, is a significant geopolitical event, then, you know, Kilroy is the, one of the main authors of that. Anyway, Kilroy rang me one evening in May because I'd sent an email to him via an intermediary. That's just a sort of conspiratorial way of saying his agent, uh, in which I said, like, Kilroy, you did Brexit, will you sit down with me? And I was on the bus and I got a phone call from a number I didn't recognise. I just heard in this, like, really menacing, low, breathy growl you're a bullshitter, Patrick Maguire. And I was really, really scared. And then, and then it, it was a bit second, I was like, oh, hello, because I knew it was Kilroy. And he said, um, how did you know it was me? And, and there was no explanation that wouldn't maybe sound like a stalker. And that's a really long-winded way of saying my biggest success of the year was going to Kilroy's house, having a long chat with him. It's a very good profile, although he did mm -hmm. promise that him doing it would mean he would stop talking about Kilroy never, in the office. Never, never. <laughs> and it hasn't happened. No, he because, has the rosette. Because every week in British politics, there's an event that tells me that Kilroy is still here. As the US soldiers made their way across Europe in the 
1940s. They'd like draw, you know, there's that sort of famous graffito of like a, a weird sort of Humpty Dumpty man with his nose over the wall, and it says Kilroy was here, and that was nonsense at the time, but I am more convinced every day that that is actually an explanation for our politics. Kilroy was here. Okay, Alva, what's your normal answer <laughs> to that question? So, I mean, this could be a good segue into the election stuff because it's still... It can't al- be a worse segue. can't be worse than Kilroy <laughs> because it's still a live issue. But I am quite pleased that when the Liberal Democrats first announced their revoke policy, I said to you that it was a bad idea and then wrote a blog on it at a conference saying that I thought it was a risk that they didn't need to take even though I could see why they were doing it. And I think that their performance so far in this election has borne that out. I was like happy for a while to accept that I was wrong on it because at Liberal Democrat conference, the, the consensus really was that the Liberal Democrats are a data-driven party and they wouldn't be doing something like that without polling to suggest that it would give them some sort of boost. And we did see that boost in the polls when they adopted their position to revoke Article 50 in the event that they got a majority. But I think that that instinct that they didn't need to do it, that they were like broadly already seen as the most pro-Remain party, was an accurate one. And like all I hear from people, people that I wouldn't expect to be sceptical about it, they just say that they think it's anti-democratic. I mean, and even among the members at conference, I think it was quite telling. that You know, Joe Swinson was quite a, a new leader and had a lot of their support, but I thought it was quite telling that they never said, oh, I think it's a good idea, you know, it's what I want. They said, well, Joe is asking us to do it. They must have the polling to show it's a good idea, so I'm voting for it. And they just totally didn't need to do it because mm. they were never going to get a majority. I mean, I'll be back here next time saying that was like my worst call if it happens. Mm. But they just, like, never needed to talk about it, what they would do yeah. about Brexit if they got a majority. It, like, they just never needed to spell it out. But it didn't help like, that at conference, this argument... Yeah. So it was, like, a 75-25 landslide on the conference floor for a vote. And the most convincing speaker against the position was a councillor from Sunderland. Bear in mind, this was, like, midday, who got onto the stage with a half-finished pint in his hand and then actually <laughs> gave a really eloquent and really convincing argument against it. But when you have sort of like metropolitan smoothie after metropolitan smoothie, just this sort of pint glugging Mackham rocking up on stage and saying, you, you know, you sort Jesse's are. He opened with a brilliant joke because they just voted very narrowly from, for minimum alcohol pricing, <laughs> which is deeply controversial within the Liberal Democrat grass. Uh, I, I couldn't decide whether to say rank and file and grassroots, so I decided to try and do some kind of new grass rifle thing. Within the Lib Dems grass rifle, it's deeply controversial because obviously you have on the one hand the kind of... So you basically have two types of freedom directly competing. So he put it down as just like, I just needed to get it in before Moon and Pricing came in. <laughs> I'm actually... He's a great guy. He's a really effective political operator, right? They have, you know, they've essentially made themselves the second party in, in Sunderland through, through very clever politics. I, I bet he didn't even drink it, to be honest. I think he just was like, I just need an opening joke because they're not going to like any of the rest of the speech. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So we'll start with the Liberal Democrats, because I, well, I realised I, like all of the Lib Dem membership, was like, well, you've tested this, so you must be seeing something that I can't. Mm -hmm. But I think, one, people don't like the idea of doing it without a democratic event, but also everyone knows it's an opportunistic policy. Mm. I just think in general people don't, res like, it's, it basically, they, they're, the revoke policy is a, we are more Romani than the Labour Party, whatever Labour says policy, right? Mm. Which... I mean, I think it's arguably true anyway, but people don't like, I think, when parties do things that are obviously designed around playing them because everyone knows that the chances of the Lib Dems winning a majority are, you know, slim. And everyone knows that, in practice, they are still a second referendum party. Mm. The only people who believe it are people who voted to leave or people who don't like it and are worried about what it would mean for democracy, right? It, mm. it's, in practice, it's become quite a repellent policy. And it was in anticipation of a future that just never came to pass, mm. as you say, that the, you know, it was anticipation of maybe Labour adopting an unequivocally pro-Remain position, and also maybe, at that point, even at conference, it looked like we would maybe be heading towards no deal, in which case revoking made more sense. But I think when you have the actual option of a real deal on the table, it, like, it looks much more radical in the current political landscape. Yeah, and also, I, there are a few other roots out of the wilderness that Tim Farron could have taken in 2016 other than saying we are the Remain party but actually pushing yourself even further to the one of the Brexit polls sort of shuts off the other traditionally much more electorally uh, lucrative route for the Lib Dems which is they were at their most successful where they were just sort of a franchise for you know local grievance in, in whatever area like you, you know you can have Ashfield is in my head because of um, Jason Zadrozny, uh, who I'm sure we'll come on to later. You know, you have a Lib Dem, Lib Dem party in sort of Ashfield in Oskimshire saying one thing, one in the Lake District saying another, and the only thing that really unites all of them is their, is the name Liberal Democrat and the fact that they're never going to be in government, which, you know, that's the other thing that nuked that. And Brexit has nuked the other because they can no longer be a catch-all, you know, a bin for whatever your grievances in whatever part of the country. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think the original Brexit position, right, the era of, and apologies to any Lib Dems in the audience who'd like to go back to that era, but the era of we hate homelessness in inner London, we hate house building in outer London, is over. It's, mm. it, it can't come back once you've been in office. They, they have to have a more coherent political offer than they had in the past, and they have to kind of, I think, lean into the period in coalition because it's not going away, right? It, it has to be made into a strength, otherwise they might as well just, you know, shut up shop and rename themselves the, you know, the I really should have thought about gag at the end of that, so I'm just hoping. <laughs> um, but um, the problem with where they've ended up now, I think, is that it draws attention to their big structural problem, which is that people know they aren't going to win. And yeah, I think what's happened what's in this. Point? Yeah, I think mm. what's happened in this election, and obviously, Joe Swinson has not gone down well among the general public. But I think actually far more problematic than the than any of the issues they may have with their leader is just the fact that they have a policy position that basically, A, says to one group of the country, we're anti-democratic, which people don't like, and to another bit it goes, and we can't win, 
And so people go, oh, so aren't you a wasted vote? Aren't I better off voting for the Labour Party or the Tory party? Mm -hmm. And it just hasn't worked out. Which brings us on to, of course, the thing we would have said, well, the thing we did repeatedly say when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister was that, yes, he had made an audacious bid for pro-Brexit voters, but he was leaving his back door open to losses to the Liberal Democrats. Is that still true? Slash, do we think that Boris Johnson is heading towards a decisive victory? Anything is decisive by, well, not anything, but anything above 12 or 13, whatever majority they become won in 2015, is decisive by the standards of the past decade. But to answer your question, not in a smart alecky sort of way. If you ask me that last week, and if you look at the YouGov MRP poll that was uh, dropped on Wednesday night, which a lot of Tories are still saying, Tory MPs, Tory candidates rather, saying don't believe the tightening, or rather the tightening in the polls that we've seen in the past week isn't going to change the headline result or isn't sort of, you know, Labour putting on votes isn't optimised under first past the post to, you know, knock us out of contention in Mansfield or Ashfield or Bolsover or wherever. So I'd say the balance of probability suggests he's sort of still on that track, but the winds of cephology are buffeting him. Mm. So I think that the, the thing that you get from travelling around and visiting constituencies is an awareness of how the ground game intersect and the sort of the makeup of a particular seat and the precise candidates on offer and the balance of power there how that predominates and then the the national campaign just swings in and out and it's interesting to see what catches people's attention and what doesn't from the ground up my feeling is that the conservatives just have such a strong message that like, if you are on a doorstep with a candidate from any party and they say, honestly, I'm just sick of Westminster politics, I, you know, whatever, whether they say that they voted to leave or voted to remain, I think Remainers are sort of, some Remainers on doorsteps are, you know, in Scotland, for example, they're annoyed with the SNP because they feel like they're not really doing anything. You know, they're stopping Brexit, but they don't know where it could go next with their MPs acting in that way. You know, they're not happy with the deadlock and leave voters feel utterly betrayed in a lot of cases and like have just personally witnessed candidates being chased down their driveways by people who are like really angry with Westminster and especially retired someone who's got a driveway angry with how politics has worked out for them <laughs> <laughs> if I had a driveway I'd, talk, I'd literally talk about it all the time I'd come, <laughs> you'd ask me like how was your weekend like oh, I spent some time in my driveway <laughs> that's like a real Londoner should, thing to say though isn't it <laughs> You should Kilroy's got two driveways. <laughs> and they're really, really long. Oh, yeah, sorry. So, but, you know, when you get a message like that, you know, the people are sick of politics, sick of the deadlock, feel like they're not being listened to, they just want some sort of resolution or want their, you know, public services to be improved. The Conservatives can say, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? If you just give us a majority, we'll get this done and then we'll get, we'll get back to focusing on the issues that you care about. I think that I've spoken to so many people who would be traditional voters for all sorts of other parties and you know the SNP, Lib Dems and Labour who say you know oh I'm a traditional one of those parties voter but you know I just feel like Boris is gonna you know get us out and get that done and that's the main way in which I see the national campaign being felt on doorsteps but then of course there is the ground campaign being fought by Liberal Democrats and Labour candidates and in both cases I think that their ground campaign tends to be stronger than the campaign on the airwaves, even when Labour are having a good time. I think Jeremy Corbyn isn't that popular, but lots of people like their local Labour MP. Or even if there's the taint of 
the revoke position or the problem with Joe Swinson, the Liberal Democrats on a local level are very good at sort of pitching themselves as like, you know, the sensible, mm. nice midway candidate. So that would suggest that the Conservatives will do well, but whether that means a decisive victory. I so, yeah, I think it feels to me that the central kind of fact in this election is the way that most of the press have allowed and the various pro-Remain campaigns have just allowed this idea that passing the withdrawal agreement means Brexit will go away. I sat in on these focus groups of undecided voters in Reading on Thursday and they asked them what the issues facing the country were. And when Brexit came up, it didn't come up, it came up as Brexit has gone on too long. Yeah. We want it to go away. And they all agreed whether they remain or leave. And what they really wanted was for the referendum not to have happened so we could stop talking about it. And I think the tension we're seeing in the polls is that the kind of the majority of people who decide elections basically want a decisive majority to do Brexit, which they know means voting for the Conservatives. But they don't trust Boris Johnson as far as you could throw, throw him, right? They, you know, so the, the woman running it went, so I'm going to ask you to, to tell me what word you associate with Boris Johnson. And they all shouted liars. And she was like, no, I, I want you to write it down <laughs> so that you aren't influenced by each other. But obviously at that point... And I think what we're seeing is... Whenever the polls go, actually, but guys, they're going to win by loads. We're like, well, I want to give that liar a huge majority. But then they go, oh, but if I don't give that liar a huge majority, then Brexit won't vanish from my television. Despite the fact, of course, he's lying about the fact that passing the withdrawal agreement means that Brexit goes away from their televisions. Um, yeah. it, just, it just goes to page six of the FT for the next well, in a really meaningful yeah, but and consequential way. Yeah, it just, yeah, it just dominates everything in, a, in, a, in another way. But I think the thing that we know we don't know is which one of those two push factors is going to feel stronger for voters when they vote? Is it, God, he's a liar and I, I can't possibly let him have unlimited power? Or is it, I just wish that the word Brexit had never existed and he's going to get rid of it? And, I, yeah, I just don't think any of us knows. And I think, actually, although I think Labour's campaign from a technical perspective is better than it was last time, I think, actually, the reason why that hasn't turned around people on Corbyn and hasn't until this week had the kind of effect it had in the polls last time is because, yeah, people have, have bought this lie that Brexit will be done. Thank you very much for being such a good audience. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.